Lesson 10 for February 27 to March 4. Paul and the Rebellion. Sabbath afternoon, February 27. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again this week and we thank you for the story that we've read, the story of your grace, your love, your planning for the future, and that each of us has part in that plan. And as we look at the struggle between good and evil, we pray that this week, through the eyes of Paul, we may catch a greater glimpse of not only your power, but your grace and your love for each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Let's read that again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul's writings abound with the great controversy theme. There's no question that Paul believed not only in the reality of Satan, but also in the reality of his works of deceit and death. In numerous places, Paul warned of Satan's schemes in Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 11, of his powerful deceptions in 2 Corinthians 11:14, and even of his supernatural powers in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. But, as anyone who has read Paul knows, the Apostle's emphasis has always been on Christ and his ultimate victory for us. However much Satan succeeded in overcoming God's covenant people through the centuries, the devil utterly failed against Jesus, and in Jesus all the covenant promises have been fulfilled, thus ensuring salvation for all who claim it in faith and obedience. Jew and Gentile. Christ's faithfulness also ensures the ultimate demise of Satan and the end of the great controversy. This week, we will look at some of the images and metaphors that Paul used in explaining the reality of the battle and how we are to live, working together for the good of the whole as a church and a community of believers engaged in this cosmic struggle. Sunday, February 28, Adam and Jesus. While Paul is best known for his clear exposition of the gospel, his explanation of the great controversy is also crucial. In the midst of his teaching the good news, he summarizes his main points. We have been justified by faith through Jesus, Romans 5 verse 1. We have direct access to God and we rejoice in hope, verse 2. And tribulations no longer worry us, verses 3 through to 5. He also gives us the promise that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, in verse 8. And that we are now saved by Christ's life and death on our behalf. 
we also are spared from God's last judgment against sin in verses 9 and 10, and we rejoice that we have been reconciled to him in verse 11. Question. Read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through to 21. How is the great controversy revealed in these verses? Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offence, for... If by one man's offence many died, how much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offence resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offences resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For... As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." After talking about all that Christ has done for us, Paul explains how Jesus did it. Unless the damage caused by Adam at the tree in the garden was fixed, there would be no hope of an eternal future, and Satan would be triumphant in the great controversy. Adam brought death to all because of what he did, verse 12. Even the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai could not stop death and the sin problem. The law only clarified what sin is. It was not the answer to sin. The problem of sin and death could only be solved through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus paid the debt through the gracious gift of his own life in verses 15 and 16. Now, humankind could be restored. Just as death had reigned because of Adam's sin, now abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness could reign because of Jesus' faithfulness. Verse 17. It is not fair that we lose paradise because of Adam. We had no part in his wrong choice, yet we suffer the consequences of it. However, Neither is it fair that we regain paradise. We had nothing to do with what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Paul summarizes his argument in Romans verses, chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. The first Adam brought condemnation and death. The second brought reconciliation and life. And so to finish the day, 
Romans 5 verse 8 reads, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Put your own name in there and claim that promise for yourself. What hope does that give you? God demonstrates his own love toward Percy Harold in that while he was still a sinner, Christ died for him. Monday, February 29, The Church Building In In Heavenly Places by Ellen White, page 284, we read, The Church of Christ, enfeebled and defective as it may be, is the only object on earth on which he bestows his supreme regard. End of quote. Nowhere is this classic Ellen G. White statement better illustrated than in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul likens the church to a crop that different people work on. One person plants the seed, another waters it, but God himself is responsible for its growth and maturity. As we read, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Paul continues his point now by describing the church as a building. Someone sets the foundation and then various others build upon it. As we read in verse 10, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Because the foundation is none other than Christ, as it says in verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, then those who follow must be careful about what sort of material they use. The coming judgment will distinguish between inferior and suitable building materials, as we read in verses 12 to 15. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, which we've just done. Compare that to Matthew chapter 7 and verses 24 to 27. Therefore, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain descended. The floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now look at what follows. Do you not know that you are God's temple, it says in verse 16, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. We need to notice two things. The first is that the context is speaking about the church and how it is built up. It is not talking primarily about health. God does not destroy people who abuse their bodies with bad lifestyle choices. They destroy themselves. Later, Paul does talk about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit in connection with our moral choices in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The second thing is that each time the word you is mentioned in these two verses, it is plural in the Greek. An individual is not being addressed, but a group. So if anyone does anything to destroy the church, he or she is in serious trouble. God warns that he will destroy the person who tries to destroy the church. So to finish today, how can we be certain that in all that we say and do, we are building up, not tearing down the church? Tuesday, March 1, The Church as a Body The role and functions of the church are clearly spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here we find the church likened to a body, and with the role of each of its members clearly defined and working together as a harmonious whole, as it says in verse 12, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 14 through to 26. What is the essential message of this passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 beginning at verse 14. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, 
because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honourable, on these we bestow greater honour, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honour to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. And, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or, if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. Paul speaks in a seemingly ridiculous manner, wondering what would happen if a foot or an ear said that they were not part of the body. Paul goes further by wondering what would happen if the whole body were an ear or an eye, as we saw in verse 17. Imagine a big ear flapping its way across the room to say hello to us. As ridiculous as that may sound, it does in fact happen when people try to control the church as if they were the sole owner. Previously, Paul outlines various activities in the church, describing each as a gift of the Holy Spirit. There are those who speak with wisdom and others who are very knowledgeable about Scripture, as we read in verse 8. There are those whose faith is an inspiration to all, and there are those with a healing touch, as we read in verse 9. There are miracle workers, people with prophetic insight, those who can clearly distinguish between good and evil, and those who can break through language barriers, as in verse 10. Note that the individuals concerned are not the ones to decide their own ability. Instead, the Holy Spirit has handpicked each of them from different backgrounds to build up and bring unity to the body and the church. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 14, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For, in fact... The body is not one member, but many. Note that the individuals concerned are not the ones to decide their own ability. 
Instead, the Holy Spirit has hand-picked each of them from different backgrounds to build up and bring unity to the church, to the body. To underscore this importance, Paul repeats himself, God is the one who decides where each member fits, as we read in verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. Most important, despite the many members, there is only one body. Each member is vitally linked to all the others, even those who do not consider themselves worth much, as we read in verses 20 to 24. This interdependence has built-in protections to ensure the safety and well-being of each. The interdependence comes into play when hurts and rejoicings are shared, as verse 26 says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. And so to finish today, some bodies struggle with autoimmune disease, when one part of the body attacks another part. These diseases can be debilitating, even fatal. Considering today's texts, how does the enemy work to undermine the body, and how can we stem this attack? Wednesday, March 2. The Armour of God. The reality of the great controversy in that we are in a literal battle with a real enemy is revealed by Paul's use of war imagery in Ephesians chapter 6. Question. Read Ephesians chapter 6 verses 11 through to 17. What do these verses tell us about how real and personal the battle is? Ephesians 6 beginning at verse 11. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand." Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." It's not what the various pieces of armour are all about, but rather what they represent that counts. Notice that Paul stresses that we need to take all of the armour, not just selected pieces of it. In so doing, we will remain standing, as it says in verse 13, a metaphor used in the Bible to describe innocence in judgment. As we read in Psalm chapter 1 and verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In other words, we will be victorious. What holds all the armour in place is the belt, 
used as a metaphor for the truth in verse 14. Thus, the truth is what holds all our spiritual defences in place. Jesus often talked about truth, as we read in John chapter 1 and verses 14 and 17. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John chapter 4 and verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In John chapter 8 verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The breastplate of righteousness follows, as we read in Ephesians 6.14. Righteousness is another key word in Jesus' discourses. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And chapter 6 and verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In the Old Testament, righteousness was understood as upholding justice and ensuring that everyone had a fair deal. The military sandals, as expressed in Ephesians chapter 6.15, represent the gospel of peace, an expression borrowed from Isaiah 52 verse 7, which reads, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns which speaks about people walking vast distances to let people in captivity know that Jerusalem has been rebuilt and that God has restored the freedom of his people. It is another way of saying that part of fighting against evil is to let people know that God has won the battle already and that they can now live at peace with themselves, with others and with God. The shield of faith, as we read in Ephesians 6.16, prevents fire arrows from hitting their intended target and causing wholesale destruction. The helmet of salvation, in verse 17, parallels the crown Jesus shares with us. In Revelation 1 and verse 6 and chapter 2 and verse 10, we read, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Amen. And Revelation 2 verse 10, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is our only weapon of self-defense, to be used as Jesus did when tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. Let's look how he did it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And verse 7, Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So to finish the day, what does the fullness and completeness of the armour tell us about our total dependence upon God in the great controversy? How can we make sure that we are leaving no part of ourselves unprotected? Thursday, March 3, The Last Enemy Evidently, some in the church at Corinth were confused about the resurrection. Paul carefully explains its importance as a key element of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. It seems there is some concern about the believers who have died, as we read in verse 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And some are suggesting that those who have died would miss out on Jesus' return. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is similar to the situation in Thessalonica, which we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through to 17. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 to 18. What is the implication of denying the resurrection of the dead? Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, 
And we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Paul concludes his argument by saying that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, in verse 19. To the contrary, Christ has indeed risen and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, he tells us in verse 20. Then Paul compares Christ with Adam. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, verse 22. And he specifies when that general resurrection will be, in verse 23, at his coming. Later in the chapter, he continues with the comparison of the two Adams, in verses 45 to 49. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The first man was made from the dust. But the heavenly man is from heaven, and so one day he too will change us. What this means is explained in a description of what happens at the second coming. In verses 52 to 53, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible will put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Although Adam was at first made to live forever, the human race soon deteriorated to the point of living only for a relatively short time. If we are to inherit eternal life, we will be made to last forever, and that's what we will be given. And so to finish today, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 23 to 26. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Though we are immersed in the great controversy now, and though death and evil and unholy forces seem to dominate the world, what do these verses tell us about how the great controversy ends? How can we learn to look beyond what we see and grasp what these promises mean for each one of us, personally? Friday, March 4. Here's a, an interesting paragraph from The Signs of the Times, November 4, 1908, written by Ellen White. 
Not only man, but the earth also had by sin come under the control of the wicked one, and was to be restored by the plan of redemption. At his creation, Adam was placed in dominion over the earth. But, by yielding to temptation, he was brought under the power of Satan, and the dominion which he held passed to his conqueror. Thus, Satan became the god of this world. He had usurped that dominion over the earth which had been originally given to Adam. But Christ, by his sacrifice, paying the penalty of sin, would not only redeem man, but recover the dominion which he had forfeited. All that was lost by the first Adam would be restored by the second. End of quote. It's so easy, though, as we look around at the world, to forget the crucial truth that Satan is defeated and that his time is short, as it says in Revelation 12.12. Evil, death and suffering pervade this world, though we are promised that, because of what Christ has done, all these will be eradicated. Also, if it isn't clear to us by now, it ought to be. These will not be eradicated by anything we as humans do, except if we completely destroyed the earth and all life on it, which we'd probably do if given enough time, and God didn't hold us back. Only the supernatural intervention of God will bring the promised changes for us. We certainly can't take care of the problems ourselves. And that brings us to our two discussion questions this week. One, a quote again from The Signal of Advance, the title, The Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, January 20, 1903, by Ellen White. Enfeebled and defective, needing constantly to be warned and counselled, the Church is nevertheless the object of Christ's supreme regard. He is making experiments of grace on human hearts, and is effecting such transformations of character that angels are amazed, and express their joy in songs of praise. They rejoice to think that sinful, erring human beings can be so transformed. End of quote. What are some of the ways that we are transformed by what Jesus does for and in us? And question two. How do we see the great controversy expressed within the church, either at the local level or in the church as a whole? What are the issues being used to divide us, to weaken us, to keep us from doing what we have been called to do? How can we bring healing and unity when people just don't agree on what we might believe are crucial points? Inside Story. This is your last opportunity, part three, and I can assure you this brings the story to an end. The story thus far. Doran Dina, a Satanist high priestess, received dreams of a man dressed in white, but she always dismissed the dream. After becoming very ill, Doran Dina ended up at the hospital and fell into a coma. During the third time she saw the dream, the man told Dorandina to go to the Marcos Seventh-day Adventist Church. She began studying the Bible and decided to become a Christian. I wanted to study about God, 
The more I studied, the more I realized that my alliance with the devil was wrong and would result in my eternal condemnation. Many people came to ask me to perform ceremonies for them. I told them that I could not do this because I had become a Christian. But I can pay double, they offered, but still I refused. My husband became angry. How are we going to pay our bills if you don't work, he demanded. My grown children stopped speaking to me, stopped caring for me. Now that I had no money for them, they had no time for me. My husband threatened to leave me if I did not return to my work as a spirit medium, but still I studied the Bible. The devil did not let me go without a fight. I destroyed the statues and all the devil's charms, and I told the women who worked under me that I had become a Christian and would no longer practice devil worship with them. These women went to the cemetery where I had practiced with them. They killed a chicken and offered its blood to the devil in exchange for my death. But God protected me, and I didn't become ill. After studying the Bible, I was baptized into the Marcos Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm old now, and my doctor says I don't have a long time to live. But I want to say that if Jesus can transform my life, he can transform anyone's life. I am so grateful to God, for he gave me the message of salvation. I know if I die soon, I will be saved forever, because God loved me enough to send his angel to call me out of devil worship and into his faith. And Dorandina Sousa Mello is from Belém in Brazil. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. <laughs>